Welcome to Rich Conversations. Today, NASA's Kat Kennedy returns to the show. She's fantastic. I'm so excited to share this with you. She was on episode 57, so if you'd like to learn more in depth about her role at NASA, how she became interested in science, and more specific things about space, you should check it out if you haven't already. Today, we nerd out about a number of different subjects. It was so much fun. I asked her about NASA, of course, and the importance of critical thinking skills. We talk about space tourism, math, generosity, and how our lives are going to be filled with just technological revolution after revolution. We discuss American history and the book Generations by Neil Howe and William Strauss. If you haven't already, you should watch my YouTube video about this book. It's the most popular one on the channel so far, and it will blow your mind. Lastly, I can't have Kat on the show without talking about dinosaurs. She recently went to Dinosaur Valley State Park outside of Fort Worth, Texas, which is a place I dream of going in my life. So I was excited to hear about that. Kat is a great follow on Twitter. Her handle is Tycatosaur2112. Let's begin. All right. So today we have Kat Kennedy here and uh, she's rejoining the program. She was on episode 57. We talked about a lot of different things, um, space, NASA, how she got interested in science, uh, a little bit of dinosaurs. I have here my, my dinosaur mug. I have that mug. Do you? <laughs> yes, I do. I thought it was some like unique mug. And then I go to like museum gift shops and they're all over the place. They are, but they're really cool. Don't put it in the dishwasher because I made that mistake. What happened to it? Uh, like the decal melts off. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Which is ironic because if you put hot beverages in here, it fades. You see right now you have, you know, the full dinosaur, but then it goes down mm -hmm. to just the skeleton. Yes. Which is pretty cool. I like that. There are so many cool dinosaur toys and items. It's, it's. I wish I had seen them when like I was smaller, but I still enjoy them now. Don't get yeah. me wrong. Yeah. Did you have uh, dinosaur toys growing up? I not really. No, okay. it was more Star Wars figures. Um, okay. Than anything. Yeah. Did you? Nice. I did. Yeah. My favorite. I had all these little things. Um, None of the like really, if you see some of the, some of those like dinosaurs, uh, the toys, they're like really detailed and they're like yes. 30, 40, 50 bucks a thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mine were these plastic ones. My dad had this, uh, he got me this Tyrannosaurus Rex. Okay. You know how like in the 20th century, how it was like standing up and it was like really awkward looking and yes. Like well, he found one of those, like a puppet, one of those on the side of the mm -hmm. road because he was working for the highway department. Okay. <laughs> and that was like, that was like the T-Rex that I played with. Wow. That's a cool story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're recording this. Uh, game five of the Milwaukee Bucks is later tonight. I'm wearing my Bucks hat right now. Very uh, nice. Are you, you into sports? Uh, I'm a huge baseball fan. Baseball. Uh, yes. My dad is from outside of Boston. And I would say when I was in second grade, I just sat down and started watching the Red Sox. And I've been a diehard ever since. 
Um, so they're playing the Yankees this this uh, weekend. So it's been a good it's been a good series. So is that um, really big in your kind of world, like playing the Yankees? Is that a big deal? Um, it used to be. It used to be like the rivalry is like at an all time peak with the Yankees. But for me, the bigger rivalry are the Astros, the Houston Astros. Um, I don't know really? why I can. For me, I can stand the Yankees now. I can't stand the Astros. I I hate the Astros so much. Wow, I'm uh, I'm actually planning to go to a White Sox game tomorrow against okay, the cool. Astros. Oh, uh, so we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> At least we're we're planning on. We'll see what happens. But yeah. um, what? So then, what's your best sports memory? Ooh, um, favorite. Honestly. It's not really a memory because I, <laughs> I remember parts of it, but I was so young. Um, I was, it was after the Red Sox broke the curse in 2004. Yeah. Um, I saw them in 2005 at the Rangers stadium in Arlington. And I was a huge Johnny Damon fan for Red Sox fans. He was like, he was the one that looked like Jesus. He yeah. Had, like, he was gorgeous. Hair. Yeah. He was so gorgeous. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, my dad, I mean, I was probably nine, I think, eight or nine. And my dad was like, if we go down to the dugout, like, you're adorable. They can't say no for a picture, right? And I didn't really get that. I get it now. I'm like, okay. Um, but I went down right before the game started. It's like 100 degree heat. I'm sweating through my cap. And I'm just waiting there because he was going to be um, first due up. And um, what I didn't know, my dad told me that the umpire gives you some time to warm up, but if you aren't at home plate to start the game within, I don't know, like 30, 45 seconds, it forfeits the game for some reason. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Maybe it's my dad that. telling tall tales. I'm not sure. But um, Johnny Damon came out and I kind of blacked out because he was like my icon. And uh took a picture with him it's blown up in my dad's living in my parents living room and um the umpire was like counting down like you better get to home plate and johnny damon was like give me a moment and took a picture with wow. me um and i'll always remember that so wow that's cool yeah. uh yeah so i'm 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 adding to my memories this week because the Bucks, the Bucks are uh, in the NBA Finals. It's tied up two-two, so okay. we need two more. And uh, probably by the time this episode is up, they'll either have have won <laughs> finals or lost. Who are so they playing? We'll find I out. I don't know anything uh, about basketball. It is the Phoenix Suns. Okay. Yeah. So it, basketball is like goes way over my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's cool. got their sport. Yeah, it's good. good so I'm excited. The last time we talked was like mm -hmm. October 2020. Uh, yeah. What are what are some of the biggest developments in in space exploration technology NASA within that time? Okay. Um, well, the last time we talked, SpaceX had just um, completed their DM2 uh, mission, which was the first crewed SpaceX vehicle that went to the station. I'm sorry, the dog. Um, I'm sorry if you heard that. Um, first crewed vehicle to 
the International Space Station. It was two guys, Bob and Doug, um, and they came back. Bob and, and Doug, yeah. Bob That's and Doug, nice. yeah. Um, <laughs> Doug actually retired yesterday. Oh, wow. But, um, they came back in August, and then in November, it was a full crew. So instead of two people, it was four people. Um, they flew, and that was the first, that was SpaceX Crew 1. And then in April was crew two. And so they've been just, um, and it was the same vehicle, the same, they like reused it. Um, so I would say that one's a big one where. Is that is that a really big deal to reuse a vehicle? For sure. So okay. we did it back in like the space shuttle era where there was a slew of space shuttles and we would just refurbish them. Um, I don't know what the time period is between landing and getting it ready for launch again. But for SpaceX, it took them less than a year to be able to get it back to normal and be able to launch again. Mm. Um, because back in the Apollo missions, we would send a Saturn V up and it that's it. You know, yeah. millions of dollars just gone. You have to make a new one. Um, so it's definitely good for our environment, I guess. And um, yeah, it's, it's a really big thing. That and... Artemis is getting ready to launch in November, which is the new Apollo. Um, and so they've been doing so many tests on the rocket and it's actually being stacked right now at Kennedy where they like assemble it. Um, and is that where you are? No, that's in Florida. Oh, okay. I'm at Johnson. Yeah. Okay. Um, Kennedy is where they launch everything and Houston's where we have mission control. Um, but yeah, that one's a really big one. It's like going back to the moon is going to be huge, but it's not crude. So, wow. Yeah. yeah why don't you remind uh, listeners what uh, what your role is at NASA? Uh, okay. So I'm a systems analyst, systems engineer, training systems operator. There's so many names, um, but I run simulations all day. So whether it be um, for astronauts, for flight controllers that sit in mission control, launch, landings, uh, EVAs, which are uh, spacewalks, all of it. Spacewalks, yeah. yeah. So what, describe your walk into work. Like what, what's the building like? And what do the okay. walls look like? What, the machinery, <laughs> what, what do you see when you walk into work? Okay, um, well, first we have to pass security. You have to like flash okay. your badge. And fun fact, they can, they can search your car at any point, <laughs> which is really, yeah. I had a friend when he was leaving once, uh, they can just take your car for 45 minutes. Um, anyway, wow. um, so you drive in, uh, the site is huge. Take a few turns, few stoplights, get to building five, um, no windows. It's just completely uh, brick stone. I'm not sure huge building, uh, walk in, uh, you have to badge in a couple times, like at each door. Um, and then it says space station training facility, NASA and huge letters. You walk into a high bay, which if you don't know what a high bay is, it's just like this huge room. And they used to have Skylab in there, like the simulator. I don't know if you're familiar with Skylab. I'm, I'm not. Okay, sorry. Am I just like what um, is Skylab real quick? Skylab was the first station. So back okay. in 
the 70s uh we flew skylab up and it was like a working lab in orbit before wow. space station um so we used to have the skylab simulator in there and it was like three four stories high but it's empty now <laughs> um oh. so you just walk through the high bay um there's a big picture of the iss and uh it's very industrial looking. It's exactly what you think it looks like. It's just like, <laughs> it's an engineer's building, you know, yeah. like not very pretty, um, but on the walls, they have every space shuttle mission, which was hundreds um, in chronological order. They have the badge and then a picture of the crew and the date all along the walls. Um, and then I open the door to my office, to the office and sit on console. So. Wow. So are there any, uh, like inspirational quotes on the walls or anything? Um, yeah. <laughs> honestly, yeah. Yes. So on the other side of the building on like another entrance they have for our two shuttle accidents challenger and columbia um they have a quote and like a mem memorandum i guess for the crew and it's like it says something really nice um they have that and then in my room they have like past present future like past the moon present space station the future mars and stuff like that so that's cool Super nerdy, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> about what I expect. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so then, have you ever been? Do you get to like? I mean, not wander around, obviously, because all the badges <laughs> and stuff. Have you ever gone into a room and just felt overwhelmed? Um. Yes. So. I would say the first time I felt that was in my interview, and they brought me into mission control like not like on the ground but in the building that houses mission control okay um you walk the halls and instead of like the space shuttle they have pictures of like people sitting in mission control from the 60s and like i knew all of their names i was like oh my god like that's gene krantz who like got apollo 13 home and um just like these famous pictures just lining the walls um, I just like walking the halls. It's just crazy to me to be like, yeah, Neil Armstrong walked these halls, you know, <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's enough for me. Um, but yeah. Wow. Uh, so then, so you you go, you go into the control room, right? And mm -hmm. how important in your role at NASA is like critical thinking skills and problem solving skills to do your job? Um, I, I would say it's, it's pretty up there with like what skills you need. Um, I would say also problem solving and the ability to be succinct in your talking to other people while you're problem solving. Does that make sense? So, so you have to have like, so while you're trying to solve problems, you also have to have the communication skills with yes. other people to communicate 
solving these problems. Yes. So sometimes something will go wrong on a major sim and people in Germany are a part of the sim, you know, and depending on how big the problem is and depending who you're working with, uh, your coworkers will come up right next to you and we'll all just be talking. Or sometimes some people, you know, are very independent and you'll be by yourself working the problem. Um, and so that's where like communication comes into play where you have to be an expert in what you're doing. Um, because if you are alone, you have to be able to go through your mental toolbox of like, okay, if this happens, this happens, is there crew? What's the least invasive way to fix this problem without taking too much of their time? How much time left do they have in the sim? All of these things. Um, and then on the other hand, you have people um, in the room next to you who will come in and get a little upset and say, okay, why is this happening? Why aren't you figuring it out? And why isn't it being done faster? <laughs> and you're like, wow. okay. And you have to be kind enough to stay calm, but also stern enough to be able to speak your mind and say, okay, this is X, Y, and Z, and this is what I'm doing. And this is the ETA, all of that stuff. So there's a lot of working parts. Wow. Do you have any recent examples you can share? Uh, <laughs> I was, I was trying to think of this and while I was just talking right now and I was like, I, this happens like every day. Um, I would say, okay, so a couple weeks ago we had a crew training and we have a schedule to go by of like, here's who's in, who's training. Here's how the configuration or what configuration they want. And this is the room that they're going to be in. And the schedule was saying something and the instructor was wanting something different. And the schedulers and the instructor didn't align correctly. Okay. Um, and so we were hearing it from the instructor of like, we want this. And we're saying we already configured it to look like this and they don't align. And the instructor's like, um, my crew is already here. And like, I need this fixed. And it's like, this is impossible to fix in five minutes. <laughs> like, wow. you know, and so it's like, okay, what can we do to fix this in five minutes without getting the instructor mad? But we also need to tell the scheduler that this is what they, it was a whole mess. Um, and we ended up doing it, but it was just like, this was not our fault. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, I guess that's just one of, so this is like every day that you have to like do this on the fly. Yes. And everyone is different. So it's like, you can run into someone that's going to be super chill and be like, yeah, take your time. And someone who's like, gets irrational, you know, and you, yeah. ha you just have to deal with it. So. So then do you, do you try to like think of the personalities that are all involved and like individually try to adjust it that way? For sure. Yeah. It's to the point, you know, at first, when I first started working here, I, I'd have a problem and my coworker would be like, okay, who's, who's running it or um, who's the person that's like getting the data in the sim. And I'm like, oh, it's this person. And they're like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, or like, oh, they're, you know, it's fine. Just like, let them know. Um, 
it's to the point now where like the person will walk into the building and I see them in the hallway and I'm like, I'm not taking that session. Like <laughs> they are, you know, um, and sometimes you're left with it and you're just like, all right, it's going to be a rough day, <laughs> but it's wow. okay. That's interesting. So then, so this sounds intense. It sounds like your days are really <laughs> intense. How do you find balance between your work life and your personal life? Um, they always say like, leave it, leave it at work. I'm not that person. I will come home and just like complain. <laughs> um, no, not really, but um, <laughs> I can, I can take it home too much sometimes. Um, and I am that type of person where if someone at work is like, texting me or, Hey, can you do this? Can you do this? And I'm already off work. I will do it. And I've realized I'm like, this isn't how, you know, some people aren't so obsessed if that's, you know, yeah. um, fair to say. And so I've been trying to cut back of like, once I clock out, I clock out like mm. <laughs> no more work. Um, and so I guess, you know, I've been setting boundaries and I feel like that's hard for everybody, but especially with work for me, because I love what I do. It's, it's harder. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, I can imagine too. Cause I mean, you're, you're really into your job and you're really into NASA and, and the mission that it both stands for and what you strive to, to reach in, in your own life and curiosity. So you want to be as helpful as possible for sure but then for you to do your job you have to be operating at your highest level and if you're yes. not getting enough rest or balance in your life then you can't you can't give that right for sure and you said it so much nicer than i did um you know i've gotten texts at three four in the morning and the shift i'm on is i have to be at work by 5 45 in the morning. And so I'm sleep, like I am out at that point. And I'll wake up at five to these texts and I'm like, oh no, like I feel responsible, you know? And some people don't feel that. And I'm, you know, I guess that's just work-life balance, figuring out like- Yeah, you're figuring it out. This is, this is not your problem, <laughs> you know, type. Um, so. So what's, uh, the last time we talked, you had like afternoons available uh and then you're what what does your circadian rhythm uh <laughs> what what is that like oh man yeah so i was on night shift in september october i went to seconds or swings which is like 2 to 10 and then i went to first shift which is 5:45 to 2 um and when you're hopping every month it's like, it's crazy. Um, and you just have to get used to it. Like by the time you get used to it, they're like, and you're going to the shift. And you're like, oh my God. Um, but since November, I've been on first shift and I've asked, I'm like, just keep me on first shift. Like I will go to bed at 8 PM. I don't care. <laughs> just keep me on one shift. Um, and so I've gotten used to it, but I have to go to bed. I have to go to bed by nine like, like in bed at nine. Otherwise I combust. 
So, so what, what does that look like? If it's still like bright outside, how do you? <laughs> I have blackout yeah. curtains. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What do you do before bed? Do you read it all or journal or do anything? Yeah, I read. Um, I drink tea, hot tea. Um, okay. What kind of tea? That's about it. Usually like chamomile or like something fruity, but um, something sweet and hot and knocks me out. <laughs> so will they keep you on first shift or no? They'll be like, thanks for the, thanks for the tip cat, but we're going to move you around. <laughs> Could you imagine? Um, usually, you know, they're pretty good about keeping you on a shift that you like. And if you're being productive enough and helpful and you're churning out good evaluations from these Sims, then it's fine. Um, if you're a little more not so productive, then they'll be like, put them on another shift. <laughs> yeah. See what happens. Um, so hopefully I've been doing well. So what do you, I imagine this is a large part of your, your job and your role, but what do you love about numbers and math? Um, oh no. My camera sometimes does that. I don't need Okay, know. okay. Uh, I for, was- for the listeners on the podcast, uh, I have a DSLR set up and uh, with a Canon TI-5, I hook it up to my computer. Mm-hmm. And like every 20 minutes, the lens just shuts off and turns back on. So that's typically what it is. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Good to know. There'll be like another one too, probably. So okay. Later. Good to know. But getting back um, to numbers and math. Numbers. Yeah. So, so that's problem solving, right? The, the lens. Yeah. That's, that's not my forte. I, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so numbers. I, I love that math there is always an answer. Like even if there's multiple answers or even if the answer is like, it's undefined, like there's always an answer and there's always a different way to solve it, which is fascinating to me to be able to ask like five different people, hey, solve this problem or hey how do you um the big one that that's always on my mind is uh how people tip on their their restaurant like receipt oh I, I always... can tell you a lot about that I barred yeah. them on the weekends <laughs> uh, oh no way okay cool um it's like how how do you get to that number like not just you throwing a number out but like how do you like how do you take a percentage you know, that fascinates me. Every time I go to the restaurant, I'm like, how do you do this? How do you do this? Because I do it in a way where I'm just like, that's so different. Or like every person will give you a different answer. And that's so cool to me. How but, do you tip? Um, I usually move the decimal point one to the left. So if it's like 50 bucks, I'd be like, okay, $5 times two, I'd be 10, which is 20%. And then I add off of that interesting yeah yeah and some people are like well i divide by five or whatever you know one fifth is 20 percent. yeah um yeah i get uh yeah so there's that way i think that's pretty standard way um but that's a nice flat number 50 so say you have like 26 91 
Um, That's true. People, people like just zeros or fives, like numbers. Just so they'll just want to get to that 30 or that 35. And then it's like 307 or like 807. <laughs> yes. um, See, I was never that person. I never, I have a couple girlfriends who would be like, they just want to make it to the whole number. And I'm like, oh, like that's so like, it's an ugly number that you're dealing with. Like just take the 20%, like, I don't know. Yeah, and then some people are very like rigid. It's like 20%. Or fifteen percent, or mm-hmm. um, whatever, and then, then it's it's interesting. Service industry people that work service industry just tip ridiculously well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then it's like, oh, it's twenty bucks. Uh, all right, here's another fifteen or another twenty or whatever. Which is great. Yeah. <laughs> I got the other day. I got a hundred dollar tip on a one hundred forty three dollar tab. It was good. Well, that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's a regular. So, and it's interesting too, like, because tipping, I mean, we're going in this whole other direction here, but uh, tipping, it's, it's really interesting because um, it teaches you about generosity and teaches you about people. And what people mm-hmm. don't realize is that generosity goes a long way. So 100%. If, <laughs> oh, 100%. It's pretty obvious, but yeah. so if it's busy and I know someone tips really well, guess who is, is always going to get the greatest service. Right. Yep. Um, and it's, yeah, that's a whole nother, a whole nother thing, but yeah, tipping is important. It's super important. And I try, you know, at least I started this thing a couple months ago <clears throat> where, you know, I feel like this is going to sound so cheesy. I'm like, if you feel like you have an abundance of not things or just like abundance of love, of friendship, of like not tangible things, like you need to like also give that to other people. And so if that made any sense, but um, I would start tipping like, like crazy amounts. And just like every once in a while when I could, it's just like, just to, just to do it and then leave and not even see the person's reaction, you know, and just, and it just, you know, you don't do it to make yourself feel good. You do it so that you can just give to other people too. I think it's important. I think the the biggest thing on, on parlaying off of that note, it's like people are coming from either like a scarcity mindset or an abundance mindset. And so if people are like limiting what they're giving because they're trying to like be protective of like what, um, you know, what their bank account is or like, Oh, I only do this or I did. There's like all these other intangible things where if you just give more, it will always come back to you in some type of way. Yes. Um, whether it's service, whether it's, it's, uh, a greeting, a conversation, it just leads into so many other things that are a lot more interesting. Yeah. And, and then it makes someone feel better, which means they're going to just be elevated as a person and be doing better for other people. Um, and it's and it, in- it goes outside of tipping itself, but in the world as well. Yes, it's infectious. And I know this week um, we're, 
we're on site one week and then off one week where we telework. And this was my teleworking week. And so sometimes on my teleworking week, I can just slip into like, I'm just going to sit on my couch and work. And sometimes it's not the greatest, you know, you, you get into that, like lazy, I'm not going to work out. I'm going to order takeout, like just like yeah. all week. And it's not, you know, the greatest, but, um, I was kind of in a slump this week. And yesterday I was like, I'm just going to go out of my way to like compliment people, not like fake compliments, but yeah. compliment people. If I see someone with a sign on the side of the road, that's like, I need help. You know, I'm going to give, I'm just going to go the extra mile. And it was amazing. It like yeah. got me out of my slump. Yeah, it was. So it's just like a testament to be like, if you are greeting people, if you're giving out happiness, like it, it comes back. It's beautiful. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so in the news recently, Virgin Galactic like went to outer space, right? And like Richard Branson's like the oldest person to <laughs> go to space or something. Uh, I think, yes. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? And then as a follow-up mm -hmm. in, do you believe in your lifetime you will go into space? Okay. I have a question about the second question, but okay. I'll answer the first one first. Um, okay. I have a couple of hot takes on this. <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. So I was waiting to see how NASA astronauts reacted. Because okay. I was like, maybe I don't have <laughs> the warrant to feel this way because I'm not an astronaut. <laughs> but I was like, well, let me see. And most of them that I saw, or any of them that I saw, they were all very happy about it. And I was like, maybe I should cool down. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I'm, I think it's pretty awesome um, that there's non-government entities that are doing it. I think that's fabulous. But I also feel, <laughs> I can hold space for both. Um, I almost feel like they skipped a line. Yeah. You know? Um, and that's, it hasn't been able to leave me. And I guess it's my classic thought of what an astronaut should be. I feel like it's very important that we should be sending real people to space and like uh, civilians, but I feel like it happened so fast, you know, within the past year, it just rocketed off. And um, that's a word, but uh, yeah, I think it's awesome, but I also feel like there's a respect that needs to be given to, I don't know, to space flight, I guess. Um, yeah, it's a, what is it, like a precarious situation? Is that, I don't know. If that, yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. It's like, we now are entering a phase where we have the ability to send tourists to space. Yes. And the reason we're in this position is because of all the hard work and dedication that's come before. It's, you know what it is? <laughs> you just, it triggered my mind. I just recently rewatched Jurassic Park. Um, and- That's a great way to spend your time. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's Ian Malcolm saying, 
you stood on the shoulders. I'm going to butcher this so bad. He's like, you stood on the shoulders of people who had done all the work for you. And now you're just, you're packaging it, you're patenting yeah. it and all that stuff. That's how I feel. It's hot take. Everyone's I, kind of, I excited. don't know if it's, I mean, maybe it's hot, but it's very understandable. I mean, okay. you interact with these people on a daily basis. You see what goes on and just the training, the <laughs> effort and yes. everything involved. And then, um, ah, yeah. It feels like, um, I wouldn't say a slap on the face. I would just say like they're, they're like, uh, like what like it's hard like that that's yeah. how i see it and it's it's a little uh, they're probably not meaning it like that but um i'm like there are thousands of people on the ground making sure that the astronauts right now are safe and you know it's it's not just for fun you know yeah it's so, so how how do we communicate to the general public kind of this idea about that that it's not just like this instant oh now we go to space now and this you know the dedication yeah. that took place before i'm not sure um that's a really good question because nasa has had a lot of setbacks like um i think it's you know we're a government agency but also the acts the three accidents that we've had apollo one challenger in columbia to bring them back up um it it really showed the public how dangerous it is and i feel mm -hmm. like the last accident we had was in 2003 and um you know people who were born after that it's like and i'm not saying god forbid there's another accident that i, I don't think we need an accident to show the importance of safety um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I don't know if that made any sense. Um, there, there's nothing at stake really, if, you know, um, yeah. and you can't really quantify that until, oh God, this got dark. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. I don't yeah, know. It, well, what you're I'm saying is sure. like, it's unfortunate that tragedy has to remind people of the importance of diligence and safety. Yes. Um, and because of that diligence and safety, we haven't had a tragedy in a long while. Yes. And you don't want it to happen again by just like taking it for granted and yes. uh, not considering all the seriousness about it. Yes. And I mean, a poster that's in at least it's in our building i know it's in our in mission control as well but um it's the foundations of flight operations and i think there's seven foundations and it's like tough competence or toughness competence um and it's they're everywhere and it just says like we need to know that at any point like in another apollo 13 could happen and we need to be ready for it and I think because of these tra tragedies, it's like NASA has just been like, okay, well, we can't spare any time. We need to do it right the first time. And that's really ingrained in all of the employees. And I, not saying that Virgin Galactic or SpaceX doesn't have that, um, but it's definitely taught us how to do things 
in such a diligent manner. Yeah. What do you think about, uh, what is it? There's like Blue Origin and there's a, another one too. Amazon, Bezos is getting involved now? Yes, Bezos is doing Blue Origin, which okay. he's flying on July 20th, which is the 52nd anniversary of the moon landing. And that's just sacrilegious to me. <laughs> I'm like, you could have picked any other day. Um, but it's the same story. I'm like, okay, well, you do what you got to do. So what's the difference? Okay, so there's SpaceX, Blue Origin. Uh, there's like another one too, right? Like Jet something. I'm not sure. Um, there's about like 11, I think. 11 or 12. Like okay. Just private organizations. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh. I don't know all the names. I'm sorry. <laughs> so what it sounds like is currently right now, you would not go to space based on principle. Yeah, I would have to go. I would have to apply to be a NASA astronaut and go that route. Okay. Okay. Technology is going to change quite a bit in our lifetimes though, Kat. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. It's crazy. I mean, when I was teaching... I would read like the Buzzfeed, um, 30 things that you wouldn't know are if you weren't born in the nineties. And I would like tell my kids who were born in like 2004, <laughs> like these things. And they're like, you had to wait to like get off the phone to use the internet. Like, oh man, <laughs> like, it's wild. Wow. What year were you born? Like 97? 90, 96. 96. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're right at that cusp. I know, I know. Sorry. You're you're yeah. right there of straddling. It, it's interesting, like um generations like millennials and Gen Z, mm-hmm. how millennials are the last generation to straddle the like analog and digital. And Gen yeah. Z is the first that's like mainly digital. Holy. Digital. Yeah. So it's going to be really interesting um, not to go like too far into this idea, but uh, I'm really into this book Generations by okay. Neil Howe and William Strauss. Have you read it? I haven't. No, 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 no. They look at American history through the lens of generational theory and psychology, mm-hmm. and they look at these historical cycles in uh, American history. They go all the way back from like 1584, and they predict to like 2069. All right, so there's a book called The Fourth Turning. Have you heard of that? It sounds like that. Um, let me see. Yes, that one. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm holding it up right now. We got The Fourth Turning. So I did a video on YouTube about generations and it's, okay. it's my most popular video. I just talk about this concept. And so there's these historical cycles that occur like every 80 to 90 years in American history and society. Yes. And they identify these like four generational personality types. And so there's two dominant types, which is the Mm -hmm. idealist and the civic type. And what Mm -hmm. happens during an idealist rise in adulthood, ages 20 to 44, is a spiritual awakening in the country. Um, And so that's that's like the transcendentalists in the 19th century, baby boomers mm-hmm. in the 1960s. And uh, because they're such a big cohort of a generation, typically, they instill a lot of their ideas into the world and society. 
Okay. And uh, there's the reactive type, which because the idealist gets so much attention and it's kind of like they dominate, everybody's hands off when raising the reactive type. So they're very mm-hmm. creative and independent. Um, but it's usually they have disastrous results time and time again in American history. This is like the lost generation. This is Gen X. Um, but Gen X, though, because of this, they're entrepreneurs and they're uh, into technology and they got the Internet to like where it is today. Mm-hmm. The civic type is another dominant force. And what they do. So they experience their rise in adulthood during a uh, secular crisis in the country. So they're the ones that have to really like come together, collaborate, problem solve, and figure out the infrastructure for the country moving forward. And this is okay. the uh, revolutionary generation, like the founding fathers, the GI generation fighting World War II and setting up the second half of the 20th century. And uh, millennials are the civic type. Uh, so when they're young, there's like optimistic, they, society sees where they went wrong with the reactive type. So they <laughs> yes. pour a lot more resources into the civic type. So they're more educated, they're more collaborative, they're more optimistic. Um, mm-hmm. And so then they have to figure this out. And then the generation after the civic type is the mm-hmm. adaptive type. And what they're known for is being the managers and administrators of the country. So they basically just execute the ideas and vision of the civic type and they just get stuff done. And those that's going to be Gen Z. Yeah. So I mean, that's pretty spot on. <laughs> so the prologue, the preface, this is written in 1991. No one, for example, can foretell a specific emergency that will confront America during what we will call the crisis of 2020. The nation's public life will undergo a swift and possibly revolutionary transformation. Oh my God. So what I think, what I think the secular crisis is, Mm -hmm. is the digital revolution. It's disrupted everything. And then because of the digital revolution, we're experiencing all these other crises that are kind of emerging and we're becoming more aware of. For sure. Um, So what I believe the civic type, the millennials need to do is figure out what the infrastructure looks like in the country moving forward in this like digital world. Mm-hmm. How, do we, how do we build our communities? How do we get along with each other? How do we get things done mm-hmm. um, and still have, still have belief in a lot of our ideals and uh, shared experiences? So that, that will kind of be the role. Yeah, that's a great insight. Um, wow. So the, the fourth turning, I was uh, in the comment section of my videos, they told me to read this one too. So I got to read this one and do a video on this one too. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of in the same, I haven't read it yet, but I've heard about it. Um, and that it's like mind blowing. Um, but yeah, it's wild. The digital, how far we've come is just... I mean, it's so cliche, but it's just so far. It's so wild to me. And sometimes it's just on a day-to-day basis. I'm just like, I can't believe like I can do this on my phone or, you know, in my car. Nothing, nothing's a surprise to us anymore. It's like our lifetimes, we're just going to experience like one technology revolution after the other. Yeah. I, 
I remember I had to teach kids how to tell time on the second hand. I was like, I'm only gonna teach this once. <laughs> I was like, how do you can't tell time because they're so used to seeing it on their phone. That's crazy to me. That's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, this more and more like now I'm entering like a new life phase and mm -hmm. it's like becoming more and more aware of like <laughs> how much the world's changed and like <laughs> how I'm not young anymore and like uh, yeah it's Dang. weird kids it's, yeah <laughs> yeah I yeah I just turned 25 like two weeks ago and I had a major like quarter life crisis I was like oh my god but whatever it's fine <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so that's something that's on my mind quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm looking to speak at colleges and universities. Uh, I wrote kind of a speech outlining kind of a lot of these principles and like to mm -hmm. execute what we should do. Like future is not mysterious. It happens over and over again in history. So yeah. all we have to do is just execute what <laughs> happens previously, um, and just get the job done. But there's like one time in American history where it skipped. It Wait, skipped. I think, no, I mean, I'm not going to guess because I'm probably going to be wrong, but I've heard of this. What, what was it? So what should have happened? Okay, so the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, what should have happened? So like Lincoln is the idealist type. Um, mm -hmm. So his generation really brought forth the ideas of uh, abolition and mm -hmm. the idea of slavery in America and confronting it, um, what should have happened, which it started to, it started to happen. Um, and that's okay. You, we have to create the infrastructure now for the union moving forward with now emancipate, mm -hmm. emancipated individuals and, um, transition them into a productive society. And so there were a number of legislators, like I think there was like over 700 um, uh, black individuals who, who were in public office. There were like two senators mm -hmm. and like, so this stuff was happening, but then like Lincoln got assassinated and everybody's just like, yeah, I don't know about all of that. Uh, and then, then I think you see the like Jim Crow and antebellum and, and just like reconstruction. We really botched reconstruction. And because what would have happened is that a civic type generation would come together mm -hmm. and then kind of implement the structure moving forward. But because we were in a civil war and so fragmented and, you know, uh, against each other, it's hard to come together to get things done. Right. Right. Which is exactly what we're seeing, I mean, not as, as um, hardcore, obviously, but, you know, the country that we're in now, it's like, okay, we all just, can we just, can we do it? Like, come on now. Um, but I guess it's going to take a couple, a few more years to get everyone just like on the same page. And that would be Gen Z, right? Or are we talking about our generation? Uh, so I think, I think uh, now we're starting to settle a little bit in the 21st century, like all these technological revolutions, the digital revolution. Um, I'm like simplifying a lot of this stuff, but like 
-hmm. we're kind of figuring out, okay, the internet, okay, we're seeing where it's going. Oh, we see these psychological effects of our screens and smartphones. Oh, we see how much it's polarizing us and it's driven all by advertising and mm -hmm. okay, we, we have to now kind of navigate that. And what I try to push and for those listening is that the biggest way to create change is, is not through political party, race, religion, economic class, it's generation. Because especially as millennials, we have these shared experiences of going from an analog world to a digital world. Mm -hmm. And we have to, we understand it best of like how to create the infrastructure moving forward. At least we have better ideas than, than people that who have not participated in it. So we kind of have to be the leaders uh, for Gen Z and have that vision of how to do it. It's a great way to put it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. All right, so we we went off on a little <laughs> little tangent there. It's so, okay. It was it was fascinating. Are you kidding me? That was cool. I'm really interested in biotechnology right now. I think that's going to drive the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. I I need to look more into it, but I hear what you're saying. It's yeah, that's another conversation. <laughs> well, I think what's so challenging for people is that this stuff is like mind blowing and intense. So it's very heavy. It's very, um, it's very scary often to think about this stuff because mm -hmm. it, it's so much change and it's so intense and it's so disruptive. So then we kind of just ignore it. But then if we ignore it, then, then that's not good either. Yes, then it can go into the wrong hands and it can be exploited and like it just I see the negative connotations of it if if we're not paying attention to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, There's a lot of work. And I think a lot of it, uh, you know, every we got to all be a little bit more open minded and willing to listen and share perspectives with other people. A hundred percent. Even when you don't agree with people. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the, that's when it needs to be happening. The open-mindedness. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, maybe sooner than later. <laughs> going, going to a little bit lighter of a subject. Go for it. <laughs> You went, to, uh, you went to Dinosaur Valley State Park recently. Yes, I, I did. have like a list of fossil sites mm -hmm. that I want to I want to check out in my lifetime. And that's one of them. What was it? What was it like there? It was really cool. Uh, we actually I mean, we weren't gonna um, we were planning on camping, but July in Texas is like no joke. Um, so we ended up getting an Airbnb um outside of the park and we actually hit like an 80 degree weather day which was great um yeah oh the webcam um do i okay uh so we went in and so this is where this is it like outside of fort worth dallas area right yeah about okay. like an hour and a half outside of dallas ish um and you get the map and the map has all of the sites where there's tracks. We didn't hit all of them, um, but some of the tracks are 
underwater, which I wasn't expecting. I didn't really mm. do a lot of research on it before I went and I should have, but we didn't like bring bathing suits. <laughs> so you can see them from like the outer banks. Um, Cause it's like shallow water. Um, but it's really cool. There's this place called the ballroom where uh, they have all sorts of tracks and they look like they're dancing, like, cause they're going in all sorts of different directions. That's oh, why they cool. call it the ballroom. Um, but we saw um, Acrocanthosaurus as well as Sorrow Poseidon tracks, which Sorrow Poseidon tracks look like elephant tracks, like, you know, cause it's a big yeah. brachiosaur type. Um, and then the uh, Acrocanthosaurus is like a smaller, like an Allosaurus type. Okay. Um, but yeah, Allosaurus, was, that's a good looking dinosaur. You ever think about that? Yeah, I it's like the Jurassic Park raptors. Yeah, that's how I see them. But yeah, they're really they're cool. I think they're like the scariest one. Even besides T-Rex, because they're faster. Anyway, yeah. um, Dinosaur Valley was really cool. Um, we hiked like three, three and a half miles. Um, it's very hilly, um, but it was gorgeous. and. Uh, definitely worth it it was really cool so then does if the tracks are underwater the footprints are they like eroding then you know that's something that I was like my brain was kind of breaking because I was like how there's so many factors for this to even be here in the first place you know is I'm like this is like a hundred million years ago and for it to have stayed and then for water to come in and for it to still be there I'm like they must like what do they spray on it I don't even I don't know yeah um that's wild to me um but yeah they look they're very deep like they're a couple inches deep it's it's crazy but yeah it was great and they have um some figurines out in the front they have a apatosaur and a t-rex and they were from the 1960s new york state fair so they were they were so weird (laughs) they look weird they're i I love them i'm like these these aren't even close but it's fine (laughs) they're charming yeah oh that's so interesting um just the knowledge accumulated even over like a century of dinosaurs. Um, yes. We have uh, Tim James. He's a paleontologist. He's come mm-hmm. on the show a couple of times. And uh, it's really interesting how expansive the field is becoming because so many people are interested in dinosaurs that mm-hmm. you just have more people participating in, in the field, you know? Mm-hmm. Have you read uh, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs? Uh I have it right yeah. here. Yes. I have not read it yet. Oh, it's delicious. I, Is it? I'm, in, I'm in the middle of it. And there's a fact at like in, within the first 10 pages, it's like for, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. It was like for a while in the 2000s, we were discovering a new dinosaur species once a week. And I was like, how is that even possible? That's, it's crazy. It's, it's an easy read. It's funny. And, um, it's, it's a lot, very informative. Okay. I, uh, have you read the dinosaur artist? I have not. 
That one's a good one. That one follows the story of this. Uh... Books. <laughs> I don't have the uh, the book cover on this one. Okay. Uh, let's see. I'll do that with my bookshelf. I organize them by colors. Sometimes without the cover, it looks better. Gotcha. Uh, and that's basically about, um, it follows the story of this Tyrannosaur species going up mm -hmm. for auction, uh, like in New York. And then one of the, one of the ladies that was like working on it or something, she's from Mongolia and she recognized that that dinosaur is only found in Mongolia in the Gobi desert. So then it's technically illegal to bring it out of Mongolia. Oh. So then it's like turn into this whole thing. And then, um, it follows, it follows the, the fossil hunter and the finder and it goes wow. through his story. And, uh, the United States is the only place in the world, the only country in the world where whoever's land it's found on owns the fossil. Yes. I, there's a documentary about Sue, actually. Have you seen it? Called Dinosaur 13. I saw it on Hulu a couple months ago. And it was, it was so sad because I'm sure you know the story of Sue where it's like they found them in the bad, Badlands and then they took it to this, um, like this company that found it and then the person who handed it over that they, the, person of the ranch they found sue on like did a handshake versus like you know signing it off and he came back and it like brought the fbi out and was like that's actually my fossil oh it's so sad to watch yeah. and it just they did jail time for like a dinosaur it was, it's yeah crazy. the story of sue is pretty wild um mm -hmm. i i i joke that sue is my girlfriend and <laughs> And so when I go to the field museum, I always, I always go over there. Um, that was, so yeah, Sue, Sue's fossil went up for auction. And mm -hmm. uh, this was in, in the nineties and the field museum wanted this big attraction. And so in the auction, it was, it was the American museum of natural history field museum. And then this, this uh, real estate guy in Florida, and he was going to put it in his foyer. That's right. That's right. Oh my God. <laughs> It's like the Indiana Jones. I'm like, that belongs in a museum. You know, uh, like, how could you do this? Like, but yeah, so it sold for 7.6 million, 8.3 with Sotheby's fees. And uh, that alerted everybody that fossils are valuable now. And mm -hmm. uh, so then ever since then, you've seen an increase of, you know, looking for dinosaur fossils and stuff. For sure. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's kind of trendy right now, which is kind of cool science all right I, I'm, I'm down with that trend yeah me too what do you um, think about this okay climate change mm -hmm. it's exposing land that hasn't been seen before because there's no ice and so That's we're gonna true. find more and more dinosaurs aren't we or like receding water yeah like um i never thought about it like that <clears throat> maybe <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you look terrified. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, I guess that's, oh, I don't want to say silver lining, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's so bad. But um, I never thought about it that way, especially because of that thing in that, in the, the book I just said, where it's like, 
a dinosaur a week, a new species, not even like a new, like, oh, this is a cousin of, this is a, you know, it's like new species. I'm like, I mean, they roamed the earth for however long. Yeah. There has to be a million different types, I guess. It's yeah. wild. Are there any other uh, fossil sites or science sites you want to visit? Do you have like a bucket um, list at all? I kind of, not, not so much fossil sites. I would love to go to the Badlands, um, but I don't know how much, I, I'd like to do like an amateur dig. I'm like, not a paleontologist, but I would love to go on, you know, a, a touristy type thing. Um, yeah, I'm trying to join James or Tim, Tim on one. Oh, oh, cool. Oh, that would be cool. That would be. Um, it's so cool. It's yeah. so cool. Um, I would also, a couple years ago, I was very invested in Chernobyl, which I would never go. I would never go. Um, but it's scientifically, like I read this book called Midnight in Chernobyl, and it just mm. goes through everything that went wrong. And wow. it's, I don't want to use the word fascinating because that's kind of like, you know, but it was wild to me. And it's, I was just so enthralled in how could they do this? And it's the eighties, you know, it's like that there, I think it was the late eighties where it, when it happened. And I would love to go as an archeological, like the archeological side of it, but yeah. I, I can't, how could you risk that, you know? Um, so I guess that's an Antarctica. I'd love to go to Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. <laughs> What's it cost? I heard it's like cost like seven grand or seventeen grand to go there. To go to sorry, that's my laptop. Um, for Antarctica, uh, yeah. yeah. So I've seen like Atlas Obscura do like cruises, and it's like for fourteen days, it's like eight thousand, and like all expense paid, eight thousand. I'm like that's. But I love that you mentioned Atlas Obscura. I feel like I'm the <laughs> only person I know that. that really? Okay, cool. Well, here I am. Um, I, yeah. Since the pandemic hit, it's been like, I don't look at their website that much, but I'm starting to do it again. And I'm just like, it would be so cool. Their trips are awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, why don't uh, I got, I got one last question for you. We'll end cool. on <laughs> what's something you're curious about recently. Um, I would say airplanes. <laughs> In what capacity? I'm reading a book right now called, uh, is it here? Yeah. Airframe by Michael Crichton. I'm a huge Michael Crichton fan. Okay. Um, and author of Jurassic Park, yeah. author of Jurassic Park, Andromeda Strain, Timeline. Um, and someone likened it to the Andromeda strain on the sleeve of the book. So I picked it up because I was like, cool, science fiction, airplanes, this would be great. Uh, I'm reading it and there's like no science fiction. It's just like a story. And I'm like, okay, I guess. But Michael Crichton does such a good job of being as accurate as possible when describing aspects of science. He's wicked smart. and he described, well, one of the characters in the book described how airplanes fly. And I sat there and I was like, I have never thought about this. <laughs> you know, I think about rockets flying and that makes sense to me. But for some reason, 
I've never thought about airplanes and how they fly. It's, you know, it's basically the same thing, but airplanes just kind of freak me out a little bit more than rockets mm. do of just the aerodynamics and the physics that has to happen for them to get off the ground is it's it's so simple but it's 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 been very curious to me i guess um it's isn't it so remarkable yes and here we are technology again and to think you know back in the 1910s when they first started flying and then it became commercial i'm like people had so much trust you know like yeah. the space you know um it's just it's remarkable is a great word um it's great but awesome yeah well thanks for coming on today this has been <laughs> a welcome. pleasure oh just nerding out on so many different I technologies know. <laughs> it was great i'm sorry if at the i was a little bit i was going oh, you're really good. fast you're good uh for those listening and watching you can uh follow cat on twitter it's ticatasaur what are the numbers 2112 like rush oh okay ticatosaur 2112 great follow and uh thanks again for being on this has been great You're welcome <laughs>